Welcome to the podcast of Follow Baptist Church. Our vision and mission is to follow Jesus in our community for His glory. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged and inspired by this message. For more information on Follow Church, you can visit our website at www.followchurch.com.au. Our scripture reading is from 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, Uh, if you'd like to turn there. Verse 1, therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith, that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly, and long to see us, as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live, if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. This is God's word. Thank you, Ernie. How good is Rachel's English? Very impressive, and all that translation stuff is very impressive as well, and if you could um, translate and make sense of one of my sermons, it's probably your greatest achievement yet, so good luck with that today, but thank you, Ernie, your um, English was good as well, mate, so well done, (laughs) very nice prayer. Excellent, on Facebook recently, it's been uh, a great joy watching some people from Follow documenting the journey of building a new home. Now, for the introverts, they didn't post the photo in front of the for sold sign, Um, for those that are mildly introverted, they just posted the photo with a little smile. Um, For those that are outgoing, it's like, yay, and for the extroverts, they're like, in front of the facade sign, and um, it's been really good to watch the journey as they move throughout the whole construction process, and so it starts with the earthworks, and you get the big diggers on site, and they start digging down, and when you're building a house, you've got to go down before you go up, and so they start digging holes and making a big mess, but eventually they start to go up, and the first sign is that there's a slab that's laid. And uh, it's all shiny and wet, and it just looks like a bunch of concrete to us. But it's very photo-worthy for those who are having the concrete laid, and so they take a photo, because it's not just a bunch of concrete, it's the foundation of their new home. And we get a photo of absolutely everything. So they take a photo of the slab. And you continue to watch as it goes along, and next thing is that the frames will go up, and the windows and the doors will go in, and the bricks will be laid, and um, the roof will go on, and then the interior will be done. And we continue to watch this process, and what we're really seeing is progress. We're seeing a a house progress from nothing, a block of land, until a completed house. And eventually you get to the big day, um, the moving day. 
And we've never been so excited about moving insanely heavy things as we are the day that we move into our house. And so we're taking the fridges and we're taking everything in there. But it's really exciting to move in on moving day. And you move in and it's complete, right? Wrong. (laughs) I know Paul and Jen just moved into their house and the first photo was the plumbers back in pulling out the toilets. There was a leak going on and fixing up the problems. And, um, you know, when you move in, I'd be lying uh, if I told you as new homeowners that the the work was finished. Wouldn't it be great if you could just take a photo of your house uh, when you got it perfect and it just stayed that way? Wouldn't that be great if your house just stayed that way all the time? But it never does. Um, the work is, is you know, forever going on. And yesterday I had one of those days, I was in one of those moods where I just wanted to be brutal. I was sick of the clutter and I was like, I was just going to chuck out the whole lot. So I just started clearing everything out. Kim had a rest and I started cleaning everything out. Good chance to throw things out when no one's looking. And so I was throwing everything out. You know, the office desk, do we need this anymore? No, get rid of it. TV, we'll keep that one. Um, But I just started throwing everything else out, you know. I just wanted to clear up, get rid of the clutter, and make the house look good again. Um, But, you know, when you move into a house, the work never stops. There's landscaping to do, there's problems to fix, there's lawns to mow, there's carpets to clean, and on and on it goes. And then we do crazy things. Once we've got the house looking good, like having kids or buying a miniature bull terrier pup, and your house never looks the same after that. And so it's continual work. And I was thinking about that this week, and it reminded me a little bit of the Christian life. The Christian life's a little bit like that. We never arrive. Anytime we fall for the trap of thinking, yes, I've made it, the Holy Spirit goes, oh, no, you haven't. I'll show you something you need to work on. All of a sudden, you've got to work on something else. And then you sort that out and you go, you beauty. And then all of a sudden, something else pops up. And and this ongoing journey of always growing in our faith. It's what the Bible calls sanctification. It's the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives to convict us, to challenge, encourage and to transform us from the inside out to become more like Jesus Christ. But the truth is, this side of eternity, we'll never make it. We'll never make it. When Jesus returns in the twinkling of an eye, we'll be made like him. But until then, we'll never be perfect. But it's important that we keep growing. The word I'd use is progress. Today, we're up to week three of a series called Progress. And for those who've missed it so far, we're working our way through the letters of 1 and 2 Thessalonians. And today, we're up to chapter 3. Now, this first letter is really concerned about the progress of the Thessalonian church. The Apostle Paul had planted the church that he's now addressing this letter to. And in chapter 1, you'll remember that Paul commends them for their progress. He said that he remembers before God their work produced by faith, their labor prompted by love, and their endurance inspired by hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. In chapter 2 last week, he moved from commending these people to defending his own motivations for sharing the gospel. His motivation wasn't greed as the Jews had accused him, but his motivation for sharing the gospel was a deep love for the gospel and an incredible heart for people who he described as his hope, his joy, and his crown. At the end of the chapter, chapter 2, Paul said out of a deep longing, he'd made every effort to return to this church that he planted in Thessalonica and check on their progress, but Satan had blocked the way. Now, Paul, when he wrote the letter, was in Athens, which is around about 300 kilometers away. And just as he'd done when he was in Thessalonica, he had been spending time in the temple, reasoning from the scriptures, trying to teach people about Jesus. From what we read in Acts chapter 17, it'd be fair to say that he was getting mixed results there, all the way from people ridiculing him, to the other end of the spectrum where some people were interested to hear more about what he was saying. And so there was lots of ministry to do where he was currently placed, where God had put him there in Athens. 
But while he was doing all this hard work, in the midst of it, it's clear that he was longing. He was longing to return to this young church he'd planted in Thessalonica. This brings us to the start of chapter 3. And Paul says in verse 1, So when we could stand it no longer, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens, and so we sent Timothy, who is our brother and co-worker in God's service, in spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. So in other words, Paul is frustrated. He's frustrated that he can't get back to Thessalonica. But while these people, they may be out of sight, they're definitely not out of mind. And he longs to hear about their progress. There's no Facebook or Twitter or Instagram. There was no email or text message. And so he wants to hear about their progress. And so in order to do that, he sends Timothy back to see them and to report back. The way he describes Timothy is really quite interesting. In verse 2, firstly, he describes Timothy as our brother. And that's a really strong word in the Greek. literally means beloved associate. This is someone very important and deeply loved by Paul. Uh, Timothy was a young man that had been saved under Paul's ministry. He journeyed with him. He'd been mentored by him. And Paul loved this young man like his own son. He had a real deep love for Timothy. And so he sends off Timothy, his brother. Secondly, he's described as a co-worker in God's service. Uh, This is also really interesting. He doesn't say, I'm sending Timothy, a member of my staff. He doesn't say, I'm sending Timothy, uh, one of the guys volunteering at the church. No, he says, I'm sending Timothy, a co-worker in God and in God's ministry. And I think that's a really interesting thing to say. Today, uh, at our members meeting, we are going to be voting on Rowan Walker to be a pastor here at Follow 2018 and beyond. And that's a really big deal. And we trust that as the Holy Spirit works in this whole process, that if Rowan is appointed to the role here at Follow, he won't just be appointed to a staff doing a job. He'll be appointed as a co-worker in God's service here at Follow Baptist Church. And I think that's an awesome privilege, and it's a massive responsibility. And so I'd encourage you to keep praying about that vote this afternoon. Paul's making it clear in this letter to this young church that he wasn't just sending any old person to them. It's not like he's thinking, oh, that little pesky church in Thessalonica. Oh, I don't really want to go back there, so let's just send the apprentice. You know, Timothy, stop sweeping the floor, mate. Come here, come here. Yeah, you said you wanted to do something else. Yeah, all right, I've got something for you, mate. It's really important. I want you to go 300 kilometres to Thessalonica and check how they're going, okay? So get going. See ya. Come back when you're you're ready. It's not like that at all. He was sending someone who was not only qualified for the task, but was also precious to him as well. Now, to add to that, Paul was having a really tough time in Athens. Uh, Ministry was difficult and hard and probably not that enjoyable. And so if there was any time that he needed support, it was right now. He needed Timothy with him. He needed Timothy supporting him in ministry, in God's service. But at great cost to himself, at personal cost, a great sacrifice... And because of his love for this church in Thessalonica, he sent Timothy all the way back, those 300 kilometers, to check out how they're going. In the text, it also tells us why he sends him. And there are three main reasons, if you're following along in the Bible today, you can look at verse 2. The first reason is to strengthen and encourage them in their faith. The second reason he sends Timothy is so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. And the third reason is in verse 5 to find out about your faith. And so he loves these people in Thessalonica. He cares for these people. He wants to help these people. Because Paul had previously been their church planter, but he'd also been their personal trainer. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to the gym and had a PT. Um, Clearly, I haven't, but maybe you have. And you've been to the gym and you've got a personal trainer. You will know that they will do everything they can to help you to grow. 
And so you go to a gym, you get your trainer, they'll teach you how to get fit and how to get strong. And so they might get you, get you doing some cardio if you need to lose a few kilos, or get you running on the treadmills, and they might start you on a weight program. But they're there to help you achieve the goal that you've set. And so they urge you on, they encourage you, and they help you grow, or so I've heard. And so you can imagine rocking up to each session, and you go to your personal trainer, and they say things like, are you ready for a big session? And you say, oh, not really. And they say, ah, it's going to be good today. We can do this. Come on. We're going to go really well today. How's your diet going? Don't answer that. Okay, let's keep going. Let's get on the treadmill first. And so they'll get you on the treadmill, and, and you'll start to run. And they'll come next to you, and they'll go, come on, faster, faster, faster. And they'll start pressing that button, and you're going, faster, faster, faster. And you start running, and by the time you've got a massive sweat up, they go, okay, now it's time to do some weights. And so they'll get you on the bench press, and they'll start getting you to, to push some weights. And for me, it'd be really big ones, but for some of you little ones. And you start pushing these weights up, and, and the trainer stands behind you, and they spot you, and they say, come on, you can do one more. You get your, the end of your set of 10, and they say, come on, one more, one more, one more, one more. And so you go one more, and they go, come on, that was easy. You can do another one, another one, another one. And so you push another one, and then you're just about to die, and they say, come on, you can do one more. I've got you, I've got you, I've got you. And then they lift it up, and they, they help you get up the last time. And so three reps ago, you thought you were dead, but you got three extra reps out because the personal trainer was there encouraging you, strengthening you, spurring you on, helping you to complete the task. And at the end of the session, they say, well done, great session, high five, proud of you, see you next week if you come back. <laughs> for me, I never did. <laughs> Paul had been this guy for the church at Thessalonica. He'd been their personal spiritual trainer. When Paul first met them, they were saved under his ministry. They were spiritually equivalent of people spending their very first day in the gym. They were scrawny. They were all skin and bone. And Paul had trained them. He taught them God's word. He would showed them how to pray. He would prepared them for the trials they'd face. And he would encouraged them in fellowship together. And by the time he left Thessalonica, they'd gone from skin and bone, spiritually speaking, to starting to have some definition in their arms. And so they started a bit like Braden Otten, and they finished a bit like me. By the time he left Thessalonica, Braden's not here, so Claire will pass that on for me. We don't know who Braden is. He's a real scorny guy. But now Paul and Silas have been gone for a while. They've left Thessalonica. And they're worried about what may have happened to these young Christians because they've faced all sorts of opposition and trials. And so in verse 5, Paul says, For this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid that in some way the tempter had tempted you and that our labours might have been in vain. Now, two weeks ago, I got an invite around Father's Day to the kindergarten where Lenny goes to kinder. And for Father's Day, they invited the dads or the significant men in the lives of the children to come along and spend some time with their sons. And so Lenny was dragging me around. I was like a dog on a leash. And he was just dragging me from one activity to the next to the next. And we did all sorts of stuff that day. We did drawing and we did painting and we did reading. But my favourite part was the block building. Maybe it's my background in carpentry, I'm not sure, but they had these really big blocks and we got the opportunity to build a big tower. And so Lenny and I spent some time building this massive tower. And by the end of it, it was the greatest tower that's ever existed at Henry Road Kinder. Just absolutely amazing. The teachers were commenting, saying things like, wow, that's incredible. And Lenny puffed out his chest to all the girls and said, that's my dad. And I said, yes, I am. And uh, we were really proud about the tower that we constructed. Uh, it was kind of like Bruno Grollo, eat your heart out. Like, this is better than Rialto. It was better than Eureka Tower. This is the best thing you've ever seen. I took a photo of it. I should have bought it today and, and shown it off, but um, Lockie smashed the TV, so we couldn't do that. 
He didn't really. <laughs> but the truth is, after we finished building this incredible, really high tower, about this high, Lenny couldn't relax the rest of the day. I mean, he was stressed out because the other kids, they're throwing balls and they're leaning against it and they're knocking things over. And he's in a real panic, you know. He goes into security guard mode. and He's like, what? Dad, they're touching the tower. He goes all red in the face and gets stressed out. And so he just couldn't relax. But for the next hour, he managed to guard the tower well enough that it was still standing when I left, which was really great. But the next time I picked him up from kinder, the tower was gone, kaput. Ground zero, nowhere to be seen, absolutely gone. Someone had knocked it over and they hadn't even commemorated it. Like I thought there'd be a plaque or something that says this is the spot where Luke and Lenny's tower once stood. But no, just completely gone. And I realised in that moment that we had laboured in vain, completely laboured in vain. And this is what Paul was going through, probably a little bit worse than my situation. But his concern was that their labour with these people may have been in vain. The progress they made the definition that has started to develop would all be lost. And so he's like, man, I'm worried about you guys. I'm, I'm worried. I'm stressed out. And so he sends Timothy, one of his greatest helpers, a qualified, appointed, personal spiritual trainer, to find out what's going on in Thessalonica. And when Timothy returns in verse 6, it'd be fair to say that Paul is very pleasantly surprised. Let's have a look at it. He says, Timothy has just now come to us from you and has brought good news about your faith and love. In verse 7, he's absolutely overjoyed. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in all of our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. For now we really live, since you are standing firm in the Lord, how can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you? Paul was clearly discouraged before this news comes to him. His work in Athens was painful toil in the light of strong opposition. And he himself may have been struggling and maybe even feeling like giving up, didn't want to continue. But with this great news, he's come alive again. He has, you know, that saying, he has a new lease of life. It's like all of a sudden good news has come and he's like, yes, something worked. We can keep going. We can keep pressing on. He's pumped. And in verse 8, it says, now we really live since you are standing firm in the Lord. All of our labour is not in vain because you have progressed. And so they have great joy because of the progress of these people. And it's quite ironic, isn't it, that Paul's task was to encourage these people, but he himself was encouraged by their faith. These scrawny Christians who had just started to get some definition when Paul left had now grown in their spiritual muscle even more since they left despite the trials they had faced. There was growth in faith and in love. And that's the title of today's message. And I think it should be the aim of our lives, to grow in faith and in love. You know, a good personal trainer will take you so far. Most people can't afford a personal trainer long term. And so they'll take you so far to reach your goal. But a good trainer will not only help you to reach your goal, they'll also give you the tools you need to keep growing yourself and to help others to grow as well. Paul, Silas and Timothy have trained these people well, and now they were training one another in the absence of Paul. Now, in Ephesians chapter 4, I read a little bit about my job description as a pastor. Part of my role is to equip God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. That's a pretty small job description. Should have that done by this afternoon. But it's a big job, isn't it? 
And that's part of my role as your pastor here at Follow Baptist Church. But I want to make it clear today that I'm not the only spiritual trainer in this place. And if you want to know who else is a spiritual trainer in this place, just look around you today. Everyone around you is part of this journey to help you grow in your faith. In the book of Proverbs, chapter 27, verse 17, it says, As iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. Now, iron sharpens iron as it rubs up against itself. You and I grow as we rub ourselves up against each other. As we rub shoulders with each other, we grow in our faith. And the Bible makes it clear how we're to journey with people as we do that. It says uh, there's a whole lot of one another terms. The Bible tells us that we're to love one another, to accept one another, to be at peace with one another, to speak truth to one another, to forgive one another, to be devoted to one another, to serve one another, to encourage one another, to build up one another, to pray for one another, and to teach one another. The Christian journey is a profound person-on-person experience. And if we're going to continue to grow in faith and love, guess what? We need each other. We need each other to keep going to the end. This church in Thessalonica, after Paul had left, had helped each other grow, even when everything seemed stacked against them. Paul had trained them, as I said before, to know the scriptures. He taught them how to pray and persevere. But one thing they did that perhaps we wouldn't expect in our modern Western churches is that he prepared their expectations by preparing them for persecution. Let me say that again. He prepared their expectations by preparing them for persecution. This is a big part of the training. This is where the prosperity gospel in the Western church is so dangerous. Prosperity gospel says that if you put your faith in Jesus, then you'll have no issues in life. You'll be healthy, you'll be wealthy, and you'll be happy. And the moment people are saved into that kind of expectation... They are unprepared for the reality of life in a fallen, broken world where even as Christians, we're not exempt from the destructive consequences of sin on creation and in our own lives. And so when people are prepared that way, come to Jesus, everything will be all right, they're not prepared for the things of life. And so when they get cancer or when their friend dies or when their business fails or when they're depressed, when their marriage breaks down, they think to themselves, well, this Jesus thing just doesn't work. I'm meant to be happy, wealthy, and happy, and, and all that, and I'm not. And so this Jesus thing, just it's not worth doing. Jesus said that the love of most will grow cold. Why? Well, I think it's often because we're set up for failure from the very beginning with a wrong theology that highlights blessing, which is a good thing to highlight, but at the same time it downplays the reality of suffering and persecution as Christian people. As your pastor, I could stand up here today and say, come to Jesus, and all your problems will evaporate. But that would make me a salesman and a pathetic pastor. And so today, I need to prepare you in two ways. The first one is this, that I need to tell you that you're going to have trials in life. If you haven't had them yet, get ready, because they're coming your way. We live in a fallen, broken world. All of us will struggle. How do I know that? Because Jesus said it. These are his exact words. He said, in this world, you will have trouble. What does it mean in the Greek? Let me read it to you. In this world... You will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. So I need to prepare you by reminding you that you're going to have trials in this life. The second thing I need to prepare you with is to remind you that eternity is going to be magnificent. And so whatever you go through in this life, the good, the bad, the in-between, 
What, what waits for us in Christ is just absolutely stunning. In Christ, will we be happy, healthy, and wealthy? Absolutely, eternally speaking. Absolutely, but a lot of it will be delayed. Much of that blessing will be delayed until he returns. But when he returns, everything we're going, going through in life will be absolutely worth it. Now, I don't want to paint a depressing picture today because I think following Jesus is the best possible life you can have right now. So I'm not saying come to Jesus and now it's going to suck for the next 50 years and then you'll graduate to heaven. No, I think following Jesus is the most magnificent life in the present that we can ever have. It's not all delayed blessing. To know Jesus, to be known by him, the creator of the universe, to grow in his word, to experience his presence, to experience fellowship. I mean, that is a magnificent life. There's no greater life to live on this planet. And the result will be great joy in our hearts. But that joy will be found even in the midst of the struggle, because struggles are real. And joy is not just a feeling. It's a fruit of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And so this is what a good pastor will say to you. He doesn't tell you, come to Jesus and everything will be fine, setting your expectation for failure. Instead, they will remind you that God will be with you always. He will never leave you or forsake you. And even in the worst times of life, it'll be a little bit like the footprints poem. There'll be times where he'll have to carry you. And that's what our God does. He's incredible. He'll never leave us. He's an incredible, incredible God. You will be healthy, wealthy, and happy when Christ returns. A new body, a new earth, rich in Christ with every good thing, endless peace and joy. What no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no mind has even conceived, these are the things that God has prepared for those who love him. And these are the things that God has revealed to us by his spirit. And so the end goal of the gospel, it isn't stuff. Prosperity gospel says, we'll come to Jesus, and the end goal is you'll have everything you could ever dream of. But the true end goal of the gospel is never the stuff. The end goal of the gospel is God and knowing him. And so I want to remind you of these things today, that sufferings, trials, and persecutions, they're to be expected in the Christian life. Jesus prepared us for that. He modeled that for us in his life and most powerfully at the cross the Apostle Paul has prepared this young church at Thessalonica for that, and he's modeling it also with great opposition. But in verse 2, he prepares these young people. He says, I'm sending Timothy to strengthen and encourage you in your faith so that no one would be unsettled by these trials, for you know quite well that we are, note the next words, destined for them. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that you would be persecuted, and it turned out that way, as you well know. This is a key part of the personal spiritual training for disciples of Jesus. The prophets were persecuted. Jesus was persecuted. Paul was persecuted. The church in Thessalonica was persecuted. People right throughout church history have been persecuted. You and I, finish the sentence, will be persecuted. It's part of what it is to follow Jesus. You want to follow me? Deny yourself. Pick up your cross. Follow me daily. It's a big part of what it is to be a Christian. It was a big part of their training. I think we're starting to see it in our world, in, our, in the West, what people in other parts of the world have seen for many years. But I think we're starting to see an increase in persecution. I have no doubt it will increase. So don't see it as a sign that God's left you. Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now let me get something straight here. That doesn't mean you go and be an idiot and then people persecute you and go, see, I told you. We don't go and invite it. We love people. We're gracious towards people. But don't be surprised if the world hates you on account of me, Jesus said. 
He goes on and he says, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Church, be ready for it. And be ready to stand in the power of the Holy Spirit when it comes. I hope you're encouraged. Chapter 3 finishes with Paul's prayer for this church at Thessalonica. In verse 11, he says, Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus clear the way for us to come to you. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. Now I want you to put yourself in the position of the Thessalonians. They're in a church, they're new Christians, they're facing all sorts of oppositions and they're in the presence of people who hate them. Absolutely hate them. They want to make life as difficult as possible. They're facing all sorts of persecution. And look at Paul's encouragement. He doesn't say, hey, go and get revenge. Post a nasty status on Facebook and show them who's boss. He doesn't do that, does he? Look at his encouragement in the midst of the hate, in the midst of a world that's growing in hate. He says, be countercultural. Go against the grain. Grow in love in the midst of hate. How important is that for us right now? in a culture that doesn't say much good stuff about Christians anymore, in a a culture where we seem to face opposition in many different ways, we don't counter hate with hate. We counter hate with love. As the hate grows, Paul says, I pray that your love grows, that it grows and it grows and it grows. This will be demonstrated in how you treat people, how you speak to people, how you engage on social media, how you use your time how you handle criticism, how you respond to persecution. Paul prays that in the midst of hate, that their love would increase, that they would be filled, but then it would also overflow. You ever had a time at home where you filled the bath and you forgot that you were filling the bath? What happens? It fills, doesn't it? To the point that it's absolutely full. And then what? It overflows. And what does the water do? It doesn't just stay in the bath, it goes everywhere. This is Paul's prayer for the Thessalonians. I think it'll be his prayer for us. That once again, we need to be captivated by the love of Christ, get a fresh vision of the cross, to realise that Jesus died in our place, that he loves us so much, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him won't won't die but will have eternal life. That's incredible love. And as we're gripped afresh by that love, Paul says, once you're filled again by the love of Christ, go and love people, not from emptiness, but from overflow. Paul prays that our love would overflow for each other. It's an inward love, isn't it? He's talking about praying, that, uh, loving those in your church community. Jesus said that the world will know that you're my disciples by the way you love one another. And so it's an inward love, but then he goes on. He says he doesn't want it just to stop there, but that it would flow to everyone else, even those who hate you. I pray that your love would overflow and go everywhere. You know, in a few weeks at the end of October, the Kadinia Shire is doing a community summit. And the idea is that you go to this summit. It's free. You can register online. I've posted all the details on the Facebook page. You can go to this summit, and you can hear about all the needs in our local community. And not only do you hear about the needs, but you hear about a whole bunch of the initiatives that are already happening. And the thing that excites me the most is you get to hear about how we can be part of meeting some other needs that exist in our community in the future. 
And I love that because uh, I think it's a chance for us to demonstrate to our local council and to people in our community that our love is growing all the time. So yeah, we're, we're doing some great stuff right now, but we believe that God's placed us here in this region to have an impact in people's lives long term, and we want to know what can we do to help bless our community. And I think it's a great opportunity. Can you imagine if we rocked up there and the greatest representative amount of numbers at that summit came from this church and other local churches? Can you imagine what the council would think if their community summit was just swamped by people in churches who rocked up saying, hey, we're here because we want to make a difference. You know, about a year ago, my brother works at Timbara. It's a prep to nine school in Berwick. And he was telling one of his colleagues about the food van. Uh, they run a food van twice a week at Burke Park in Packenham for the homeless and disadvantaged. And he was telling his colleague about it, and she was saying, oh, wow, that's awesome, that's so good. And then he said to her, yeah, my, my brother's church runs it. And, and her comment was one that really surprised me. She said, what, a church does that? I thought 50 years ago, that's what we were known for. We were known to be the hands and feet of Jesus, caring for people, blessing our community. And I pray that we'll be a church that's known for that, that our love would continue to grow. You know, I just want to read a message I got this morning on Facebook. And uh, Gary Solomons will be very encouraged by this. He runs a ministry where we hand out welcome packs to people who have just moved into the area. Basically, it's got a couple of um, coffee mugs full of chocolates and coffee and tea and then a little leaflet about the church and basically a thing on the outside just saying, hey, if you ever need us, we're here. And I got this message this morning from a lady I've never met before and she wrote this. She said, I've never been part of a church community probably because I've not really believed in the concept of them. I've thought that churches and religion are simply a facade for making money. I missed out on that part. And for the most part, hypocritical. I've never believed that one needs to sit in bricks and mortar to have God in one's life. But, dot, 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 I've found that after the life I've led and the things I've done, here, at this point, God or something is drawing me, in brackets, us, towards something bigger than life itself. The gift that was left on our doorstep when we moved into Timbertop has been in the back of my mind fairly constantly, and I feel that this is our starting point somehow. I watched the video Sacrifice and Life that we have on our website, just hesitant to take that first step, jump, and the net will appear. And so I wrote back a couple of messages, and she was planning to come today, but her son dropped in unexpectedly, and she's planning to come next week. And I'm not going to be here next week, but you guys are going to be the most welcoming church on the planet, as you always are. And she's going to come once, and she's going to go, you know what? There's something different about these people. Their love's growing all the time. This Jesus they talk about, I want to know more about him. And I can't wait for the day where she stands up here and gives a testimony about how Jesus has changed her life. That's great. I pray that your love would overflow and go everywhere. Verse 13, he finishes and he says, May he strengthen your hearts, that's your inner being, the center, the seat of your emotions, your life, so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. And so Paul's sending this letter. He's saying, well done. You're progressing. It's tough, but keep growing in love. And as you go through the trials, keep your eyes on the finish line. Keep your eyes on Jesus and his return, the author and perfecter of your faith. Now, if you were lost in the desert this week, the Pakenham Desert, and you were dying of thirst, and you saw in the distance a waterhole, I'm pretty sure you would keep your eye on that waterhole, you'd pray it wasn't an oasis, and you'd keep your eye on that waterhole, and it would keep you going. But you know what? Jesus 
is like that. That water hole is the only hope. Jesus is our water hole. He's our only hope. And so we need to fix our eyes on Jesus. He also says in the Sermon on the Mount that blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. And so Jesus is saying, keep your eyes on him. John Stott in his commentary on 1 Thessalonians says, there's no greater stimulus to holiness than a vision of the second coming of Christ when he comes in all his glory with his holy ones as this chapter finishes. Church, on that day, nothing will matter except to be holy and blameless in the presence of God, standing before Jesus. The only way we can be holy and blameless is by putting our faith in him. On the cross, he died in our place. He died for our sin. It's awesome that he would do that. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And when we put our faith in Christ, the sins we've committed and the things we've done wrong are shifted from us and they're placed on Jesus. And so when we stand before him one day, in the presence of God the Father, standing before God the Son, because of the work of God the Holy Spirit in our lives, we can be holy and blameless and righteous because when God the Father looks at us, he doesn't see our sin any longer, but he sees the righteousness of his own Son. He doesn't say guilty. He says, holy, righteous, blameless. That's the power of the gospel. We don't have to earn a way to God. We simply have to put our faith in Jesus. The writer of the Hebrews encourages us. He says, let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. As we wait for that wonderful day, my prayer is that we continue to progress, fixing our eyes on Jesus, that we would grow in faith and love for the glory of God. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for your word. We thank you that it challenges, inspires, and changes us from the inside out. Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would convict us today and encourage us today and help us to live this out, Lord, that we would be people that don't just go through the motions with some sort of ho-hum Christianity where we tick a box and come to church and go home and that's about it. But Lord, I pray that we would be people that would fix our eyes on you, that each and every day we would grow in faith and we would grow in love. I pray that we would be filled with the love of Christ so that it would overflow not just to one another, although that's very important, but it would also overflow to everyone else, even those who don't like us. And I pray, Lord, that as we love people, I pray that people would see you working in us. And I pray that they too would have that moment where they come to know you as their Lord and Saviour. Lord, it's the greatest moment we can ever have in life. And I pray that many people in this community in the years to come would encounter you in a life-changing way. And so help us this week, Lord, as we go to live this faith, to share this faith, and to be your representatives on this planet in everything we do, all for your glory and in your name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.